the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What did Jesus experience on the cross? He bore the full brunt of God's wrath completely and alone. Because you called us as your own. You brought us to your fold. All the wrath of God for our sins were placed upon him. No part of him was left out, and no part of that wrath was held back. Every bit of God's wrath that we deserve was poured out upon him upon the cross. We long for you alone. He is the perfect Lamb of God, right? A man who came and lived in our midst, but without sin, just like us, yet without sin. Flawless, yet just like the rest of us. He was a male in his prime when he was, when he was brought into his public ministry from the age of 30 to 33. And certainly, as we said already, he was without blemish, right? Sinless, the Lamb of God. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God has been working many signs and wonders against Pharaoh and Egypt's gods. So far, God has sent nine plagues to the Egyptians, each one more devastating than the last. Today, we'll begin to look at the last plague, the Passover, and the proceeding feasts God instituted for it. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Well, with the close of chapter 11, the focus now shifts away from Pharaoh and it shifts to Israel as God begins a new work in a new nation. We said that the whole theme of Exodus is God's promise to a new nation. We saw in Genesis God's promises to the patriarchs and, you know, as he's moving forward and narrowing down, we saw from broad to narrow, we picked Abraham and then it went to Isaac and then to Jacob and, you know, then his sons. And, but now we're we're finding that God is speaking to this entire people here and we're seeing his promises to this new nation and that new work in this new nation, it, it begins in earnest tonight in chapter 12. And while the Passover was a final night of judgment upon Egypt, it was also an inaugural night for Israel as God keeps his first promise to this new nation to bring them out of their bondage in Egypt. So chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Remember contextually where we've been is the nine plagues have come so far. Pharaoh has told Moses, I'm not letting the people go if you're going to take your cattle with you. And so tough. And so Moses has shared with him, if that's the case, then the 10th plague is coming and it's going to be, I'm going to slay every firstborn in the nation. And so Pharaoh, upon hearing that, he says to Moses, you better watch your back. If you ever see my face again, you're a dead man. And Moses says, you know what? You're right. You're not going to see my face again. We're done. And Moses leaves angry. It says he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger because this man who had continued to harden his heart, Well, now Moses turns his focus as God speaks to him and he says, Moses, and now the focus is going to move from Pharaoh and I need you to speak to my people. 
And the first thing he says to him is he says in regards to the, he's going to give him instructions now for this night, this night where God is going to judge the firstborn in Egypt. And he starts off by saying that this night will mark a brand new start, a new beginning for this people. This month, he says, shall be unto you the beginning of months. This event marks the start of a new life, a new birth, so to speak, for the Israelites. And therefore, it required a new way to measure time. The Jewish people still followed the common calendar, but this became known as their religious calendar. This became the starting point of their religious year. And so they would have two calendars kind of going side by side with each other during this time. And you know what's interesting is, isn't that similar to what happens to us at Salvation? Like how many of you have described and said, you know, well, how old are you? And you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm 42, but spiritually I'm X amount of years. Because we have a new birthday, right? A birthday the day we gave our lives to Christ. We experienced a new birth, a new start to our life. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Well, this technically is the birth of the nation of Israel. And so he says in verse 3, that this new beginning, it's going to start off with a lamb. He says, speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the house is too little for the lamb, in other words, if that much food would be wasted, it says, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of souls. Later on, I think it would be a minimum of 10 and a maximum of 20 is what would be set up later in the scripture, or at least the traditions of the Jewish people. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. And so here we see that it would begin now on the 10th day of this month. This month, this start of this month, on the 10th day, this would be the day that they, they, that they would commemorate this night. And so it would be, this would be the day today that we're actually here this morning or this evening, Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem as their promised king and their Passover lamb. Now, what I find fascinating here is notice that their relationship with the lamb they would bring in was both personal and communal. It was something that was to be taken into their home, so to be personal, but it was something that was also to be shared with the community. And I find that fascinating because my relationship with Jesus Christ is both of those things. It is both personal and it is communal. And sometimes as a church, we can get out of order either, or as Christians, we can get out of order either way. We can say it's all about community and then it's not about the individual. It's not about personally. And then sometimes we get out of order and we say, well, we don't need the church and we don't need to gather communally. And it's just about my personal relationship with Christ. I've had conversations with, with both people. They feel like the performing of the rituals, you know, that's what's good enough for them and that's their experience with the Lord and they don't need to have this personal walk with Jesus. And then I've talked to those who find no value in coming to church whatsoever. And both of those areas would be an error. The scripture teaches us that we need one another, that we are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but rather we're to provoke one another to love and to good works and to gather even more as we see the day approaching. Listen, how many of you know that Jesus is closer to appearing now than he was then when Paul said that? 1900 years have gone by, or the writer of Hebrews, I guess I gave my solution away. We're way closer now, 1,900 years closer, you know, more than that now. And so it's important to be in community. When I hear people say that church attendance or being involved in church or being plugged into a church isn't important, I say, you know, that's interesting. Which letter did Paul write to individuals? Not a single one. Now, you might say Titus and Timothy, but I'm pretty sure they went to church since they were both pastors. Not a single one. 
All of the letters that are written, not just by Paul, but every single individual was written to a community because God intends us to be in community with one another. We need each other. And even if you feel like, well, you know, Pastor Will, you're a nice guy and all, but I really don't get anything out of your sermons. That's fine. That might be true. But we need you, even if you don't need me. Even if you don't feel like you're getting a whole lot out of it from other people, we need you. We need you here. Young, old, we need you. A young person shouldn't look at an older person and say, I don't need them. They're just old-fashioned. They don't understand my ways. Really? If that's how you're thinking as a younger person right now, then I would implore you, as nice as possibly, to repent. Because here's the truth. Those folks, they've walked with Jesus longer than you have. And they have something to offer to you. We need them. Do you know how grateful I am for many of the older people who ministered to my life? As a young Christian, I was a high schooler and then a college kid. Our youth group would go out to do yard work for many of the widows in our church who could not physically do that anymore, some of the older couples who could not physically do that anymore. So we'd rip out weeds and rake leaves and mow yards and do all that kind of stuff. And that was great. I liked being outside with my companions and stuff at youth group. But you know what my favorite time was? My favorite time was eating sandwiches that I didn't even know existed because no one in my time ate them anymore. And listening to their stories of all their walk with Jesus throughout their life. Many of those widows were the ones who wrote me letters at Bible college and encouraged me to continue. They would send me money. That's how Bev got coffee sometimes. Those people strengthened me, poured into my life in ways that were so necessary and helped me to become a mature young man of God. So if you're younger here today, don't just kind of ignore somebody or blow them off because they think, oh, well, they kind of are old fashioned. They don't do it my way. Hey, you know what? They've made it this far. You might want to pay attention. Now, on the same token, if you're older, don't just think someone is just young and obnoxious and crazy. There's a tendency to that. Me and Bev, we'll joke with each other and we realize we're getting older because things are starting to annoy us. Seriously, you know, we realize that things that didn't used to annoy me so much, they're starting to annoy me. There are moments, just some small moments, not very long ones, but some small moments where I turn into the angry man who wants you off his lawn. Get off my lawn. I turn into that sometimes, okay? And I can get so narrow focused and so, you know, centered on my world and everything's, I've worked hard to get it this way and everything's in place and now my life isn't crazy anymore. So stop bringing crazy into my life. The beautiful part though is we need to be reminded that God just doesn't always work that way. God, sometimes he kind of kicks us out of our box and he stretches us still because our race isn't over yet, right? When, when you look throughout the Old Testament, one of the common themes we find is so many of those kings ended badly, right? They were great kings, good men, men of God who did great things. But then we find this story where they just became hard-hearted or proud or lazy or whatever it was because they weren't out there on those front lines fighting again. And you know what happens sometimes when you see kind of a young crazy person who's out there fighting the fight? It kind of stokes a fire inside, doesn't it? Hey, you know, that's what it does for me. I see one of these young people, they probably don't know a tenth of the Bible I know, but I just see a fire in them that's kind of gotten a little quiet in my heart. And I think to myself, oh, I need that. And I want to hang out with them. I want to be like, I just want to follow them around because I want some of that fire to kind of come over here and rekindle my flame again. So we all need each other. We need community. Here's the thing, a personal walk with the Lord, you can only live off somebody else's fumes for a while, only so long. I mean, it's cool. That's why I think a lot of times if someone is attending a church and God bless them, that's very high energy and really exciting and whatnot, but kind of light on scripture and kind of light on substance, they crave to be back there and they want to be there because the idea is you're, you're feeding off that. There's a, an excitement and an energy and a love for God that's genuine and it's there and it's good and you feed off that. The problem is, is that only lasts for so long. I know there are times in my life when I was a very young Christian and I kind of had that. I'd come in excited on Sunday and the word would be taught and I'd recommit things to God and I'd go out and Monday would be great 
great. And Tuesday would be okay. And then Wednesday, I would just, I, all that fire was gone because I hadn't been reading my Bible and I hadn't been praying and I didn't have any personal relationship with Christ. And so I realized that something was missing that other people had that allowed them to have more stability in their walk with the Lord. And that's where this comes from, is that personal relationship with Christ. When you bring him into your home and you say, you're going to be a part of my marriage, you're going to be a part of my child ring, you're going to be a part of my individual life as I pour my heart out to you, whether it's my requests or my concerns or my fears or my woes or my hurts or my injuries or my pains. When we talk to him, we seek wisdom from him, we, we learn from him, we find warnings that we heed in the scripture. These are the ways that we grow and we mature as believers is through that personal one-on-one time with Jesus. We need both. We need both. Something else I find interesting, notice that the lamb here in verses three and four, we still are in Exodus. In verses three and four, the lamb here was for everyone, great or small, large group, small group. It didn't matter who you were God said, bring your lamb in, you know, bring a lamb in because God loves everyone, right? Doesn't matter how, how well known you are. Doesn't matter how little known you are. I've always been fascinated by the idea of these people who are just known by everybody. You know, I don't, I'm not one of those people who don't want to be known, you know, <laughs> you know? leave me to myself. I mean, I'm happy. I, li- I like a good book and a chair. I- I'm cool. But there are those who want to be known, want to be recognized, want to be seen. And there are those that that garner that attention. They're very talented. They're very public and with those talents. And as such, they get that. But even though you might think nobody notices you, God notices you. And he loves you. And he wants you to invite him into your life, into your home. We see down here in verse 5, the requirements for the lamb. You know, we see here that it says your lamb, when you're going to bring into your home, it needs to be number one, without blemish. Number two, a male of the first year. And number three, it has to be taken from among the herd, the normal herd of sheep and goats. And I talked about this this morning, so I'm not going to go in, into this too much detail um, tonight. But, but suffice it to say, the idea of without blemish, it meant that you could not have a gimpy or grumpy sheep. He had to be both physically and morally, or in a sense of his disposition, he had to be a perfect or flawless sheep. And if he wasn't one, you had to find another one. And, and so you would bring him into your family, into your home for five days, and you would watch this sheep and be able to observe if indeed he was physically and morally or disposition, he was flawless. Secondly, he had, be, had to be a male of the first year. In other words, he had to be a male in his prime. A male sheep would reach adulthood between five and seven months. Therefore, a year-old ram was one in its prime. But thirdly, he had to be taken from among the sheep. He could not be from a specially bred herd. He had to be from the normal group. Thus, he would be distinct, as flawless, and yet also common, just like the rest of us. Now, as I said this morning, Jesus, those are beautiful pictures of him, right? He is the perfect Lamb of God, right? A man who came and lived in our midst, but without sin, just like us, yet without sin. Flawless, yet just like the rest of us. He was a male in his prime when he was, when he was brought into his public ministry from the age of 30 to 33. And certainly, as we said already, he was without blemish, right? Sinless, the Lamb of God. Well, verse 6 When you bring him in, your lamb, you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. So those five days. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So for five days, he would live with you, this this ram. And then you would bring him out and the whole congregation would kill it, that one lamb. Now that's fascinating on so many levels here. Because if Sunday, like today, is Palm Sunday, today's the day you would invite the lamb into your home, then where does that bring us to on the fifth day, the 14th? That would then be Thursday evening when he would be killed. 
that would have been the same day that Jesus was crucified. Now you might be saying, time out, Pastor Will. If Jesus was crucified Thursday evening, or he died Thursday evening, then why do we celebrate it on Good Friday? We have to remember something. We do days a little bit different than the Jewish people do it, right? They have the evening and the morning based on Genesis chapter one. Their day starts in the evening, not in the morning. So our Thursday night would be there Friday night, right? So then you would go from there and then the next day would be Friday morning. That's why the Sabbath begins on Saturday, but Friday at 6 p.m., right? But that, they count that as Saturday. So do you see how that works? So 6 p.m. hits, that's when Friday would hit. So he was killed on Thursday, but we celebrate it as Good Friday because that's what it was to the Jewish people. So we just need to get our calendar in order with them and everything will be hunky-dory. It's also fascinating here that, so the lamb would be killed the same day Jesus was crucified. It's just here that the whole assembly would come out and kill not them, but it. Each lamb was offered as if it was the only lamb. Why? Why is that? Obviously, it points to Christ, doesn't it? That there would be one lamb that would die for all the sins of the congregation, right? One who would die for all the sins of the world. So even though it was something personal, it was also communal in the sense that every lamb was treated as if it was the only lamb and was paying the price for the sins of the entire community. Verse seven, and what you do with your lamb after you kill him, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat of it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast it with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. That which remains of it until the morning, you shall burn with fire. So afterwards they were to take the blood and they were to put it on the top of the doorpost, the sides of the doorpost, okay? And we learn later on in this chapter that they do it with a hyssop branch. So they would take the hyssop branch and they would scrub it on there. Now, I don't, have you ever tried to paint with like a hyssop branch or a tree branch? Have you? Me neither. I can guarantee you this though. I've seen someone try to do it. It's messy because it's everywhere. So when you do it, you, you kind of soak it in there. And the idea of blood's obviously heavier than paint. So for the most part, it would smear on there okay. But what's going to happen as you put it on the top? It's going to drip down. So there'd be four places where there'd be blood. Here, here, and here. And what position does that give? This is the position of the cross. You know, fascinating stuff found here in the Passover celebration. Notice here it says, and you shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. And it says that you'll also eat it with bitter herbs. And then he instructs them, don't eat it raw. Don't boil it in water. And then make sure you eat everything. They would normally not eat the head. The entrails would normally be taken out and either they would be set aside or done something else to be done with it. And they can leave nothing till the morning. So no leftovers, okay? So totally fascinating here. Number one, that are roast it with fire. That doesn't sound particularly good for the carcass, you know? And the idea here is that the entire creature was to experience the fire completely and alone. Every other offering, as we'll learn later on in Leviticus, that God would, would tell them to do, there'd be certain portions that would go to God, certain portions that would go to the priests, and then there'd be, in most cases, not always, a certain portion that they would eat as well. But in this case, God says, there's only one part that goes to me, that's offered to me, and that's the blood. Everything else will be roasted with fire. And of course, what did Jesus experience on the cross? He bore the full brunt of God's wrath completely and alone. All the wrath of God for our sins were placed upon him. No part of him was left out and no part of that wrath was held back. Every bit of God's wrath 
that we deserve was poured out upon him upon the cross. Now, the blood is interesting as well. The only part that was offered to God. We'll get to that in a little bit later. It mentions here also that they were to eat it with unleavened bread, which means without yeast, which would cause the bread to rise. Yeast was always a symbol for sin. And the idea here is that obviously points to Jesus being sinless yet again. It also mentions that it was to be eaten with bitter herbs. I remember I went to a Seder dinner once and I'd never had horseradish in my life. So I didn't know any better. And they're like, you know, take it and you put it on, you know, I don't know if it was the bread or if it was something else we put it on, I can't remember. And you put it on the bread and eat it. And I thought, all right, I have never breathed that good in my entire life. I felt every sinus just open up. So the idea of these bitter herbs, why did God have them eat the bitter herbs? Well, there's a couple reasons. And maybe someday we'll, we'll have a group come here and do a Seder dinner for us to show us the cool symbolism that's there. But the thing that spoke to me about the bitter herbs is this. It is a celebration. The Passover feast will be that because God has redeemed them, right? Brought them out of bondage, brought them out of Egypt. But it was done in the realization that sin was judged so I could go free. You know, redemption is both sweet and bitter, isn't it? When you think about it. Because although salvation is free to us, was it freely bought? No, it was not. John and Ezekiel have, John the Beloved in Revelation and Ezekiel in in his book, they both have similar experiences where God presents to them a scroll. Uh, Now, suffice it to say, I don't have enough time to go into it tonight, but I believe that scroll represents a title deed of the earth. There's good, ample reason for that. When we get to one of those books, if Jesus tarries long enough in 70 years for me to get there, we'll go through that. But when both of them eat it, their reaction is exactly the same. It was sweet to their taste, right? But it was bitter in their belly. And the idea is that Jesus coming back is glorious. It's awesome. He'll fix this mess of an earth. But it's bitter, isn't it, too? Because he's going to judge sin. He's going to deal with those who are opposed to him. He's going to deal with those who have brought wreck and ruin to our world. And so the Bible says that blood will flow to the horse's bridles. It will be a bitter and sweet time. I, I hear Christians sometimes, they rejoice when, when wicked people fall or they rejoice when you know, wicked people suffer or think they you know, experience bad times. And my heart breaks because that's not God's heart toward those people. He loves them and he cares about them. Now, is it good that justice was done? Yes, but it should be bittersweet to us, right? It should be bittersweet. Well, lastly, it mentions that nothing was to remain. And again, there was to be no leftovers. This was a once for all sacrifice, Right? And isn't that what Jesus did for us? He doesn't need to be re-sacrificed over and over again, right? He died once for all, amen? Amen. Well, verse 11, it explains how they were to prepare this night and how they were to spend this night as it was about to occur. He says, and thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So a couple things here. You need to eat it with your loins girded. In other words, the idea is you got your sash on, your belt buckled, you're ready to go. When I'm at home, I tend to dress really, 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 really laid back. Shorts and a t-shirt. And if I got to do anything, go outside, I'm putting the sandals on. I, I just, you know, as little clothes as possible that I can get away with and still keep my salvation. It's hot. The idea here is no, you are packed and you are ready. You're going to have your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and when you eat dinner, you're going to eat it quick. Why? Because it's the Lord's Passover, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. To many, they would probably be a little bit comedic. Why are you all dressed like you're going somewhere? Well, we are going somewhere. What do you mean you're going somewhere? We're leaving Egypt tonight. (laughs) Pharaoh, our whole country is destroyed. I don't think he's letting you go now. Oh, no, no, he's going to let us go. 
See, it was to be done in faith with the expectation that God would do exactly what he said he would do, that he would bring deliverance even though it looked like against all odds that could ever happen. You know, it's interesting in Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. one of the many things that's mentioned as Moses being a man of faith and performing actions of faith, it mentions in Hebrews eleven twenty-eight that through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. It was by faith that Moses did this. It was by faith that he told them this was coming. And it was by faith that every Israelite or Egyptian, as we'll get into later, did this and believed the Lord ready to go at any moment because God was executing judgment so interesting against all the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh had defiantly declared, who is the Lord and why should I listen to him? Well, now he knows. And so does their entire made up pantheon. He's the God who is far superior to any God that Pharaoh owned, any God that Pharaoh could pray to, anyone that he would ask you to help, to intervene, to stand in the way of this Jehovah God who's making our lives miserable. He was the one who walked into Egypt and took down their gods one by one as if they were just straw men. That is who he was. Moses and the Israelites were to do what God commanded them by putting the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. This was done in faith that death would pass over their house that night and not take the lives of their firstborn. In the same way, we put our faith in the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross for our sins that God would pass over us in judgment. This is the good news, that we can all have life in Jesus. Should you have questions or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.